you for listening to Understanding Christianity. I'm Pastor Sean Cole. I'm the lead pastor of Emmanuel Baptist Church in Sterling, Colorado. I also serve as a professor at Colorado Christian University. Thanks for listening to our podcast today. Many of you are probably very familiar with Charles Spurgeon, the Prince of Preachers. Uh, In the 1800s, he was the preacher of the Metropolitan Tabernacle in London, England, probably regarded as the greatest preacher of the past two or three hundred years. And he is venerated by both Arminians and Calvinists and others as one of the greatest preachers of all time. And I love Charles Spurgeon. I quote him from time to time in my sermons. I've read many of his sermons, many of his books. I'm a great fan of Charles Spurgeon. But there's a thing that Charles Spurgeon said that has caused a lot of controversy among evangelical Christians in regards to the issue of Calvinism and Arminianism and Reformed theology and non-Calvinistic theology among Baptists and and just it's caused a lot of controversy and so let me let you hear his statement this is from his defense of Calvinism he wrote a booklet called The Defense of Calvinism. And let me just let you hear Charles Spurgeon's statement, and then we'll interact with it and see why it was controversial. He said this, quote, I have my own private opinion that there is no such thing as preaching Christ and Him crucified unless we preach what nowadays is called Calvinism. It is a nickname to call it Calvinism. Calvinism is the gospel And nothing else. I do not believe we can preach the gospel if we do not preach justification by faith without works, nor unless we preach the sovereignty of God in his dispensation of grace, nor unless we exalt the electing, unchangeable, eternal, immutable, conquering love of Jehovah, nor do I think we can preach the gospel unless we base it upon the special and particular redemption of his elect and chosen people which Christ wrought out upon the cross. Nor can I comprehend a gospel which lets saints fall away after they are called and suffers the children of God to be burned in the fires of damnation after having once believed in Jesus. Such a gospel I abhor. If ever it should come to pass that the sheep of Christ might fall away, my fickle, feeble soul, alas, would fall a thousand times a day. Many Calvinists are proud of using the term Calvinism is the gospel and nothing else. Now, we have to be very careful with that statement. And I think Charles Spurgeon got himself in trouble by saying that. And here's why. Calvinism is not the gospel. Calvinism helps understand the gospel. It's the undergirding of the gospel. It explains how people come to be saved. But Calvinism in and of itself is not the gospel. So what I want to do in this podcast is number one, we're going to do three things in this podcast. The first thing I want to do is I want to lay forth five things about the gospel that the scripture teaches. So that's what we're going to do first of all. Then we are going to listen to Pastor John Piper. 
Uh, John Piper is obviously the pastor of Bethlehem Baptist Church, the former pastor of Bethlehem Baptist Church. He has a podcast called Ask Pastor John. This was a question that was asked a few weeks ago. Do Arminians preach a different gospel? And he defines it or he articulates it. And so we're going to listen to what he has to say. And then what I'm going to do next, the last thing we're going to do is we're going to look at this statement of Charles Spurgeon. And he basically unpacks five truths related to Calvinism and the gospel. And we're going to try to understand how Calvinism basically um, undergirds or provides the foundation or the understanding for the gospel. While it is not the gospel, it does help us understand the full reality of the gospel. So let's first begin to look at five reasons why the gospel is so vitally important. What is the gospel? And we start with, number one, it is the most important message we can ever share. It's the most important message we can ever hear. And we go to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 1 through 4. Paul defines for us the gospel. He said, now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preach to you which you received in which you stand, and by which you're being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures." Notice what Paul says from the very beginning. He says, I want to remind you, brothers, of the gospel that I preached to you. The gospel simply means good news. The good news that was preached. And they had received this gospel. They're standing in this gospel. They're being saved by this gospel. They need to hold fast to this gospel. And so the gospel is a message. It's the good news message that needs to be preached. It's the good news message that needs to be believed, embraced. And it's the good news message by which all sinners are saved. So what is the content of the gospel? Paul goes on to say, I'm going to deliver to you as of first importance. So basically what Paul's saying is this is the most important thing I can deliver to you. Now there are many important things that Paul said and there are vitally important things that Paul said. But Paul here is saying, listen, there's one thing that you need to understand is of first importance and here's what the content of the gospel is. That Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. So what is the gospel? Here's a working definition of the gospel. It is the good news message of the historical fact of the literal Jesus Christ of Nazareth who lived a perfect life on earth, who died on the cross for our sins, who was buried in a tomb, and then three days later rose again, and this is all according to the Scriptures. So the gospel is a message that must be preached. It's a message that must be believed and received. It's a historical reality. The gospel is the message of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That is the gospel. Now, there's four other things that the Bible tells us about the gospel. So number one, it is the most important message we could ever share, the most important message we could ever preach, and the most important message we could ever receive. But secondly, Paul also tells us that there is inherent 
power in the gospel. He says in Romans 1.16, For I am not ashamed of the gospel. For it, the gospel, is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. So the gospel message, the message of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ has inherent power. It's the power of God for salvation. So the gospel message has the power to save sinners. Thirdly, The gospel is the valuable treasure of the glory of Christ. Where do we see the glory of Jesus Christ shine most brightly and most brilliantly? What makes us worship Jesus more fervently? It's in the gospel. Paul also says this in 2 Corinthians 4, 4-7. He says this, In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing what? What what has Satan blinded unbelievers from seeing? Paul says the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. So non-believers have been blinded by Satan, and in their blindness they can't see the light of the gospel, the light of the good news of the glory of Christ. Who's the image of God? And then Paul goes on to say, For what we proclaim, what we preach is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, Let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. The gospel is the fullness of the glory of Christ. And Paul says, we preach Christ as Lord. And when Christ is preached as Lord, when the death, burial, and resurrection and lordship of Christ is preached, God opens the eyes of blind sinners to show them the glory of Christ. And Paul says, this is a treasure. It's a treasure in jars of clay. We are jars of clay. We are merely humans. We we are feeble, but we have the ultimate message of the gospel. It is a treasure, and it's God's power. So number one, the gospel is the most important message we could ever hear. Number two, there's inherent power in the gospel. But thirdly, the gospel is the valuable treasure of the glory of Christ. But fourthly, the Bible also teaches that the gospel is the word of God. Truth, the word of truth. Paul says in first or in Ephesians chapter one, verses thirteen and fourteen. Paul says, "In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit." He calls the gospel of our salvation the word of truth. In Colossians one five through six. Paul also writes, Of this you've heard before in the word of the truth, the gospel, which has come to you, as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and growing. Twice he calls it the word of truth. It's absolutely true. The death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ is an undisputed historical fact that God has come down from heaven in Jesus Christ and bought us in his Blood. Notice what Paul doesn't say. Paul doesn't say the gospel is true. Now, there's nothing wrong with that. But there are many things that are true. For example, 
I was born in Kansas City, Missouri. That's true. I'm six foot two. That's true. I have blue eyes. That's true. I'm married to Dawn. That's true. There, there are many things in this world that are true, true factually, but they have no inherent power or the sovereignty of God behind them. What Paul says is the gospel is the word of truth with the capital T. Not only is it true, but it is the truth. Fifthly, the gospel is life. The gospel is life. Second Timothy 1, 8 through 10. Timothy said, or Paul says to Timothy, Therefore do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me as prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God, who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of His own purpose and grace, which He gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began, which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. What has Jesus done through the gospel? He's abolished death and brought life and immortality to sinners. The gospel is life. The gospel is truth. The gospel is the treasure of the glory of Christ. The gospel has power. The gospel is the most important message we could ever hear. Those are five truths about the gospel, but let me give you a postscript. Let me give you a a, a postscript at the end of these five. And it's probably obvious. There's nothing more precious than the gospel. Paul says in Acts chapter 20, verse 24, But I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. That's Paul's heartbeat. He says, listen, my life is not valuable I don't count my life as something worth even keeping. It's not about me. It's about the glory of God. And the one thing I press on to do, the one thing that He's called me to do, the one thing I want to spend my life doing is testifying to the gospel of grace. Now, why does He want to testify to the gospel of grace? Well, we've just looked. He wants to spend His life testifying to the gospel of grace because, number one, it is the most important message we could ever hear. Number two, the gospel has inherent power to save. Number three, the gospel is the valuable treasure of the glory of Christ. Number four, the gospel is absolute truth. And number five, the gospel is life. Now, that is biblically a case for what the gospel is. Is Now, when Spurgeon said Calvinism is the gospel, I disagree with that statement because we've just seen what the gospel is. Now, I would agree with Spurgeon that the gospel makes fuller sense. The gospel comes to life. We can understand the implications of the gospel. We can understand the undergirding, the foundation of the gospel. We can understand how God saves sinners. We can understand the fullness of God's activity in saving sinners from first to last when we embrace what the Bible teaches about God's sovereignty and salvation. But that in itself is not the gospel. 
So what I want us to do now is to listen to how John Piper answers this question. And he gives some great insights into this, and I agree with what he says. Let's listen to what he says, and then when we come back afterwards, we're going to interact with Charles Spurgeon's statement. Pastor John, what is your opinion? Can an Arminian preach the gospel effectively, Christ and him crucified? Okay, I love Spurgeon too, and as he was unpacking those points uh, about uh, the foundations and the riches and the heights of gospel truth, I was saying amen. However, my answer is, can an Arminian preach the gospel effectively? Yes, he can. Now, notice, um, Benjamin did not ask, can an Arminian preach the gospel fully? He didn't ask, can an Arminian preach the gospel without implicit or explicit theological defects? He didn't ask, can an Arminian preach the gospel without tendencies that lead the church in harmful directions? He didn't ask, can an Arminian preach the gospel in the most Christ-exalting way? And my answer to all those questions would be, no, they can't. What he asked was, can an Arminian preach the gospel effectively? Which I take to mean, can an Arminian speak enough of gospel truth so that God is willing to use it to save sinners? And the answer to that is yes. Now, let me say something about why I say this, because this, this is important. We need to not understate or overstate the, the issues here. Why do I say that? Spurgeon said, there is no such thing as preaching Christ and him crucified unless we preach what nowadays is called Calvinism. And then he unpacks some what Calvinism means. The problem with this way of saying it is that it creates an unrealistic picture of what really happens in preaching. He, he treats gospel preaching as all there— or not there at all. And when he says it this way, it's misleading, because in fact, preachers, Arminian and Calvinist, always preach aspects of the gospel, different ways of saying the gospel, different emphases of the gospel. And all of us use language in preaching that at least sometimes, is not perfectly clear as to whether the words that we're using carry a Calvinistic meaning or an Arminian meaning. They could go either way, depending on what you're intending by the words. We don't always specify. We can't. We can't qualify that often. So whether whether you're a Calvinist or an Arminian, you can't qualify every sentence you speak as you preach Christ to make sure that every sentence carries a distinctive Calvinist or a distinctive Arminian meaning, which means that the same Bible sentences about the death and the resurrection of Jesus will be quoted by both preachers, both Calvinists and Arminians, and God can use those Bible sentences to save sinners, even if all the Arminian or all the Calvinist implications of those sentences are not made explicit. 
So here, here's the gospel. Let's see if, if a Calvinist and an Armenian could say what I'm about to say. I'm going to preach the gospel now. God is a glorious, all-holy, all-righteous, all-just God and created the, us for his glory. All people have sinned by not living for the glory of God, but preferring other things over God and thus dishonoring God. And we are by nature rebellious and we cannot change ourselves without divine help. Therefore, we are all under the just and holy wrath of God. We will all perish eternally if we cannot be saved from his wrath. But God, in his mercy, has sent his own Son into the world, Jesus Christ, to bear the sins and to endure the wrath for all those who believe on him. Faith alone unites us to Christ so that his his death counts for us and his righteousness can be imputed to us. Everyone, therefore, no matter how terrible your background has been, no matter what your ethnicity is or intelligence or gender or socioeconomic status or family background, everyone who believes, simply believes on Jesus, that is, receives him as Savior and Lord and treasure will be saved and have eternal life. So turn from your sins and give up all self-reliance and trust in Jesus. End of gospel presentation. Now, I think both an Arminian and a Calvinist can say every word that I just spoke. Now, of course, we know that at several points in that gospel presentation, our beliefs will take us in different directions as we explain those sentences, and those differences really do matter uh, as people grow in faith. These things are not—Calvinism and Arminianism are not a matter of indifference. But even before we make those differences clear— These gospel sentences are true as they stand, and God can make them effective in the mouth of both Calvinists and Arminians. What people who hear believe—now, this is is a crucial statement—what people who are hearing the gospel believe when they hear those sentences, um, what they've believed about what God really is like— That will become clear as people are taught the fuller, deeper truth. And if the God they believed in, the God that appeared to them as glorious and desirable, proves not to be the true God and the true Christ of the Bible, that will become plain as truth is unfolded to them. And uh, the false believers will be revealed, and the true believers will be confirmed. So my answer is yes. In this sense that I've just tried to unpack, an Arminian can preach the gospel effectively, Christ and him crucified. So we've just listened to John Piper's answer to that question, very concise, very clearly articulated. But let's go back to Spurgeon's 
statement, and let's try to unpack it to see what he means by Calvinism is the gospel and nothing else. Now, that statement in and of itself is probably an absolute statement that Charles Spurgeon may not have fully meant to say, or maybe he was saying it to to get a rise out of people or, or to be bold. We really don't know. But he goes on to explain what he believes are crucial to the gospel. And he really unpacks five truths that I would say are not necessarily the gospel, but are five truths that have to undergird, be the foundation, help us understand the full reality of how God saves sinners. So here's the first statement he says. He says, I do not believe we can preach the gospel if we do not preach justification by faith without works. That is absolutely true. Uh, The gospel is the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, and the implication of that is we can't save ourselves. We are dead in sin. We can't work for our salvation. We have to be justified by faith. Now, what does it mean to be justified by faith? Paul tells us in the book of Romans what that means. Paul is very clear in the definition of justification. He says this in Romans chapter 4, verse 1. What shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now, to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. That's a very important truth about the gospel. Verse 4 To the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as due. Paul is saying, listen, if you work, you are owed pay. That's the way you work. None of you would go to your job and tell your boss, hey, listen, today I'm clocking in, but you don't have to pay me. I'm just doing this for free. No, when you go to work, you expect to be paid because you either signed a contract or you were hired under a certain stipulation for a certain wage. And so that's just the way it works in the world. You go to work and you get paid for what you did. And that's the way it works in the business world, in our, in our jobs. We work and we expect to get paid for what we did. And Paul says that's not the way it works in salvation. Now, we may think that's the way it works. We may think that, listen, if I just do all these good things, if I just go to church, if I try really hard to obey the Ten Commandments, if I really try to be a nice person, if I'm just spiritual, if I, if I give to good causes, if somehow I do enough, then God is obligated to pay me back by saving me, by accepting me, by counting what I've done as righteous in His sight. And Paul says that's not the way it works. That is not grace. That is not salvation by grace. He says in verse 5, to the one who does not work but believes. So here's the way the gospel works. Here's the way salvation works. We don't work for our salvation. We simply trust or believe or place our faith in Christ and His work on our behalf. 
It's a gift of grace. And when that happens, Paul says, we are justified. God justifies the ungodly. And our faith is counted as righteousness. In other words, this great exchange happens. Justification by faith without works. When we believe in Jesus, not in our works, not in anything that we can do, when we're ungodly, when we're sinners who can't save ourselves, when we believe in Jesus, God does something amazing. He takes our sin and puts it into Christ's account and takes Christ's perfect record and puts it into our account. And so when Christ's perfect record comes into our account and our really terribly bad record of sin goes out of our account on Christ, then God can look down upon our lives and He can make a wonderful declaration. He can look down upon us as the judge of the universe and He can declare us not guilty. He can declare us righteous on account of Christ, not ourselves, not something we earned, not something we did. It has to be a free gift of grace that God gives us from outside of ourselves. And then when you go on to chapter 5, he tells us the blessing of what justification really means. He says in Romans 5, 1 and 2, Therefore, since we've been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through Him we've also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. What is the blessing of justification? When God declares you not guilty on account of the righteous, perfect record of Christ, the the Bible here says we have peace with God. We're no longer at war with God. We have peace with God. And then he also says we've obtained access. We've obtained entrance into God's presence before we were barred from God's presence, before we were guilty before God. We were under his wrath. We were under his condemnation. But now, because we have the record of Christ imputed to us through faith, we can have access to the very throne of grace, open entrance, ushered into the presence of God the Father through the work of Christ. In this, we stand. We stand in this grace. It's a permanent standing. And then this causes us to rejoice. It causes us to have hope. It causes us to see that now we are accepted by God. And so the gospel is the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. But the way that we're saved, and I agree with Spurgeon here, is justification by faith without works. That is foundational. Now the second thing that Spurgeon says here, he says that I do not believe we can preach the gospel unless we preach the sovereignty of God in His dispensation of grace. In other words, what Charles Spurgeon is saying here is that God has the sovereign right to irresistibly shower grace upon who He decides to shower grace upon. In other words, this is the truth of sovereign regeneration. This is the truth of effectual calling. This is the whole idea of irresistible grace, that God is the one who causes us to be born again. If we're dead in sin, we don't have the ability to believe. We don't have the ability to repent with without God first granting us the gift of regeneration or the new birth. And this was promised all the way back in the Old Testament. In Ezekiel chapter 36, verses 25 through 27, God the Father promises in the new covenant, in the time of Christ, that there would be this wonderful new regeneration, rebirth, cleansing that would happen. And notice that God is the one who does it. God says, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness. 
And from your idols, I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and to be careful to obey my rules. Notice the one who's going to do this. God is. Why is God the one that's going to cleanse us? Because we cleanse ourselves. Why is God the one that's going to give us a new heart by replacing our heart of stone with the heart of flesh? Because we can't do that. God's going to put His Holy Spirit within us. God's going to cause us to walk in His ways. And the reason that God has to do this is because in our deadness, in our spiritual depravity, we lack the capacity, we lack the power, we lack the will to do these things. We can't replace our heart of stone with the heart of flesh. We can't cause ourselves to be born again. We can't wake up one day and say, listen, I've got the ability now. I've overcome my spiritual deadness and I can just believe on Christ whenever I want to. No, God has to come first and be the initiator. Spurgeon says God has the sovereignty of His dispensation of grace. God dispenses His grace sovereignly. He's the one that initiates it. And if you go to John chapter 3, when Jesus is interacting with Nicodemus, who comes to Him at night, Jesus is referring to this passage of Scripture in Ezekiel that we just looked at where God promises to sprinkle with clean water and to put His Holy Spirit in us and to do this powerful work called the new birth. Listen to John chapter 3. Jesus says in verse 3, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again or, or literally born from above, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he's old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? And Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. Notice the imagery Jesus uses. He must be born of water and the Spirit. Where do those two images come from? They come from Ezekiel. When, it's, when God promises, I will cleanse you with clean water. This is not speaking about baptism by immersion. This is talking about a spiritual cleansing that, that God is going to do in our hearts where He's going to cleanse us from the inside out. He's going to wash away our iniquity and He's going to put His Holy Spirit in us. And so Jesus is referring to this passage in Ezekiel when He's talking to Nicodemus about being born again. And, and, and He says, listen, Nicodemus, you can't even see the kingdom of heaven. You can't even enter the kingdom of heaven unless you're born again. In other words, you can't just decide to one day enter the kingdom of heaven unless God first causes you to be born again. And when God does that, when God sovereignly causes you to be born again, when God comes and cleanses your heart, and when God comes and liberates your will, and when God comes and opens the eyes of your heart, and when God comes and takes out your heart of stone and puts in a heart of flesh, when God comes and causes you to be born again, when God comes and gives you the gift of repentance, and faith, then and only then can you come to Christ. Jesus goes on to say in verse 8, the wind blows where it wishes and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who's born of the Spirit. In other words, we can't control the sovereignty of the Holy Spirit and who He's going to cause to be born again. 
And we know from the rest of the scriptures that the only people that the Holy Spirit is going to cause to be born again are those whom have been given to Jesus before the foundation of the world. Before the foundation of the world and eternity past, the Father gave a people to the Son. He chose them. He elected them. He gave them to Jesus as a love gift. In time, Jesus came and died on the cross specifically for those whom were given to Him. And then at a point in time in your life, the Holy Spirit came and applied that election and applied that redemption to you by causing you to be born again so that you would believe in Jesus. John 6, 63. It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is of no avail. The words that I've spoken to you are spirit and life. You think about this imagery in Ezekiel of water and spirit and new heart. And then you take about the, think about the imagery in John chapter 3 of, of being born again, being born from above. Paul says this in Titus. 3, 4 through 6. See how Paul ties this all together. He says, When the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the, listen to this, the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ. Do you see the wording there? The washing of of regeneration there's that spiritual cleansing i will i will cleanse you with water i will regenerate you and renewal of the holy spirit renewal the new heart being given a a heart of flesh that heart of stone being taken out god is sovereign in this ephesians 2 4 through 5 but god being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us even when we were dead in our trespasses he made us alive together with christ By grace, you've been saved. In your spiritual deadness, in your deadness and sins, you can't cause yourself to be made alive. You can't believe in Jesus unless God first comes and makes you alive. God must come and take out that heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. God must be the one to take the blinders off of your eyes. God must wash you internally. God must liberate your will so that you are willing to come to Christ. We have an example of this in Acts 16, 14. Paul goes down to the river in Philippi and he begins preaching. And it says, One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods, who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And we find out she becomes saved and the church begins in her home. Notice the wording there, the Lord opened her heart. Maybe you've heard a pastor say this before or you've heard a teacher or somebody say, just open your heart to God. Just open your heart to God. Let God come in. Just open your heart to God. God, Jesus is standing at the door of your heart and He's knocking at your heart. And Jesus is a gentleman. He's not going to force Himself in. He's going to just wait. Softly and tenderly, Jesus is waiting, waiting for you to open the door so that He can come in. He stands at the door and He's knocking. He's waiting. He's really hoping that you will just open your heart to Him and come to Him. And when you just open your heart then God has the freedom now to come in. Before He couldn't because He's waiting on you. And what that presents to us is really a wimpy Savior 
who can't act sovereignly in giving us grace? Do we have to sit around and use our own free will to somehow open our heart and wait for Jesus to wait upon us? Or does the scripture teach us the opposite? We're dead in sin. We can't open our heart. Jesus isn't there at the door knocking, just waiting. If he's sitting there knocking at the door, he's going to be waiting forever because we don't have the capacity to open the door of our heart. We are dead in sin. We need resurrection. We need sovereign regeneration. We need the power of God to do that. And so Jesus, through the power of the Holy Spirit, comes and opens our heart so that we can believe. And so Spurgeon says that, that we preach the sovereignty of God in His dispensation of grace. The other thing he says here, the third thing, he says, we don't preach the gospel unless we exalt the electing, unchangeable, eternal, immutable, conquering love of Jehovah. This is none other than unconditional election. It's a very strong statement. He's saying God is unchanging in his sovereign election. God is immutable, meaning he doesn't change. It's a conquering love. It is a love that God in eternity past set upon a particular group of people to save them. Listen to Jesus in John 10, 14 through 16. Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. Just as the father knows me and I know the father and I lay down my life for the sheep And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me. Now, if you go and just trace this whole theology through the Gospel of John, all the way back to John chapter 6, you realize that these that Jesus knows, the sheep, are those whom the Father has given to Him. And Paul tells us that These were given before the foundation of the world. And then later on in John, Jesus has an interesting conversation with the Pharisees about this whole issue of being a sheep. In John 10, 24-30, we read these words, So the Jews gathered around him and said to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me, but you do not believe because you are not part of my flock. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. Notice the interesting terminology that Jesus says there. He says, you do not believe because you're not part of my flock. Now, we would probably, in our free will type of viewpoint, want to reverse Jesus' wordings there. He would say, well, the reason that you're not believing is because you're not part of the flock yet. So here's, here's, the, here's the logic that, that an Arminian would look at, or, or, or a non-Calvinist would look at. You believe, you use your free will to believe, and once you do that, then you become part of the flock. You weren't part of the flock before, You become part of the flock by believing. And Jesus says just the opposite. He says, the reason that you're not believing, the reason that you're not coming to me, the reason that you're not being saved, the reason you're not trusting in me is because you're not part of my flock. You're not among the elect. You're not those whom the Father has chosen before the foundation of the world and given to me. You're not one of the sheep. 
Because if you were a sheep, you'd hear my voice and you would follow me, but you're not. So you're proving yourselves that you're not one of the elect. And so Jesus flat out says, the reason you're not believing, the reason you're not coming to me is because you're not part of the elect. And if you're not part of the elect, you won't come to Jesus because you're not part of his flock. And the scriptures teach that this choice of God was made before the foundation of the world. It's immutable. It's unchangeable. It's the conquering love of Jehovah that Charles Spurgeon says. Ephesians 1, 4 through 5. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. God chose us before the foundation of the world. He gave a people to Jesus before the foundation of the world. Jesus was was given a flock, a group, the church, his bride, before the foundation of the world. 2 Timothy 1.9, we've already looked at this, but Paul says that Christ saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of His own purpose and grace, which He gave us in Christ Jesus. When? Before the ages began. When were we called? When did we receive this grace? When did God's purpose come into... When did God purpose this? Before the ages began. Before the foundation of the world. In Revelation Chapter 13, verse 8, there's this statement about during the time of the end when there's going to be a a time of the beast, however you interpret Revelation, whether it's present time, future time, that's that's for a different discussion. But what the scripture says is all who dwell on the earth will worship it. That's the beast. Everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb that was slain. You see the same thing in Revelation 17, 8. And the dwellers on earth whose names have not been written in the book of life from the foundation of the world will marvel to see the beast because it was and is not and is to come. The scriptures say that the elect's names were written in the Lamb's book of life before the foundation of the world. You've maybe heard a pastor say this before or an evangelist. When people come forward at an altar call and, and they sign their name on the card or they raise their hand, um, they may say something like this. Now that you've come forward and you accepted Christ, God has written your name in the Lamb's book of life. Now your name's in the Lamb's book of life because you've trusted in Jesus. Well, this passage of Scripture says your name was already written. Your name was written there before the foundation of the world. Why was your name written there before the foundation of the world? Because you were chosen before the foundation of the world. You were given God's purpose of grace before the ages began. You were given to Jesus by the Father before the foundation of the world to be saved. Another key text is Acts 13.48. They're coming and they're rejoicing about the salvation of the Gentiles. And it says this, When the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord, and as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. That's a very clear statement. Why did they believe? Because they had already been appointed to eternal life. Which comes first, being appointed to eternal life or believing? The being appointed to eternal life comes first. God appointed, God predestined, God chose a group of people to in time believe 
or come to Christ. And this happened before the foundation of the world. And so this gives us an undergirding to the gospel. Now, sovereign election is not the gospel. Unconditional election is not the gospel. Neither is irresistible grace or sovereign regeneration. Those are not the gospel, but they help us understand how the gospel works and how salvation works. Because when you go out and share the gospel, whether you hear a pastor preaching from the pulpit like me, or you're talking to a friend at Starbucks, or you're at school and you're talking to a coach, or you're talking to a friend, or there's a coworker in your cubicle, or you're out on the baseball field, wherever you happen to be, or you're with a family member, and it's a late night conversation or whatever, and you're going to share with them the gospel or you go into a village in India, whatever context you're going to share the gospel, here's the truth of the gospel. We know that the gospel message has to be preached, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. We know that the gospel message is powerful to save. We know that the gospel message is the treasure of the glory of Christ. We know that the gospel message is truth, and we know that the gospel message is life. We know that when we share the gospel, we are being faithful. But here's the thing. How does a person respond to the gospel? If a person has been chosen before the foundation of the world to be saved, and in God's sovereign timing, in God's sovereign generation, regeneration, He so chooses to regenerate that person when you share the gospel with them, the reason they respond is not because you were persuasive, The reason they respond is not because you did such a great and stellar job at at laying forth all the intricacies of the gospel. It's not even because they used their free will to come to him. It's because when you were faithful in sharing the gospel, God was so pleased to call out one of his elect and sovereignly regenerate them, and they came to faith. And you have the joy of being part of that experience. So sovereign regeneration is not the gospel, Unconditional election is not the gospel, but they help you understand the gospel. They help you understand that those who are going to believe the gospel are those who have been chosen before the foundation of the world to believe. And the reason that they are believing is because God has sovereignly regenerated them from the inside out to believe. That helps you undergird, understand the implications of the gospel. Now, here's the, the fourth one that is really, really controversial. And listen to what Spurgeon says. He says, I don't think we can preach the gospel unless we base it upon the special and particular redemption of his elect and chosen people, which Christ wrought out upon the cross. This is none other than limited atonement, which I don't particularly like that term. I like Charles Spurgeon's term, particular redemption. In other words, it's the, it's the whole truth that Jesus Christ's intention on the cross was to die specifically for those whom were given to him before the foundation of the world and only those. In other words, it's the whole idea that Jesus died for his elect. Jesus did not die for the sins of the entire world. He died only and specifically the intention of his death was for the elect and the um, scope and design of his intent was limited only to those who would believe. Now, it doesn't mean that his atonement doesn't have 
infinite value. It doesn't mean that his atonement um, would not have atoned for all the sins of the world, but that's not God's intention. God's intention was that the death of Christ would only atone, would only pay for the sins of those of his elect. Now, there's a lot of verses we could go to, but one of the the, the um, beautiful pictures of this, and it's, it's a little intricate and it's a little um, difficult to understand at times, but really it's the, it's the book of Hebrews, which is the, the high priestly um, nature of Jesus as the mediator, as the intercessor. And if you go back to the Old Testament, it's very interesting when you read Exodus and you read what the uh, Aaron and his sons were to wear when they would go and, and, and sacrifice in the Holy of Holies for the people, uh, they would wear an ephod. It, it was the, uh, the, the, this uh, priestly garment. And embedded in the priestly garment would be 12 stones to represent the 12 tribes of Israel. And so on these stones, close to the priest's heart and his breast, it would remind him as he was going into the Holy of Holies who it was that he was sacrificing on behalf, who it was he was representing. He was only representing the 12 tribes of Israel. He was only representing God's chosen people. When he went into the Holy of Holies, when he went in to make sacrifice for the people, he did not have the Egyptian Pharaoh embedded in a stone in the ephod. He did not have the Canaanite high priest. He did not have the Amorites or the Edomites or or any other pagan people. It was only the people of Israel that God had ordained the priest to make atonement for. And so when the priest went in to the Holy of Holies to make atonement, he was only atoning for the sins of of God's people. And he was only praying for God's people. He was only intercessing and making prayers on behalf of God's people. You never see Moses as the intercessor. You never see the priesthood making prayers um, for the Egyptians or making intercession for the Canaanites or the Edomites. The high priest prayed specifically, interceded specifically for the Israelites and sacrificed specifically for the Israelites. And so as the high priest, as the mediator for Israel, it was a limited or a particular atonement. The atonement was not made for the Egyptians. The atonement was not made for the Canaanites. The atonement was not made for the world. It was made specifically for God's people. And so when you come to the New Testament and you look at the high priestly nature of Jesus' death on the cross, he is in a sense doing the same thing on behalf of God's people. He is the intercessor. He's the mediator. And so when you look at Jesus as high priest, when he died on the cross, he was specifically dying for those whom were given to him before the foundation of the world. Listen to Hebrews chapter 7, 23 and 25. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he, this is talking about Jesus, holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he's able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. Now, there's three things that we see here about Jesus. Number one, he holds a permanent and perpetual priesthood. So he's not like the Old Testament priest who died and then they had to get a new one. Because he's the the risen, resurrected King of kings and Lord of lords reigning in heaven, he holds a permanent and perpetual priesthood. And then the scripture also says there he's able to save to the uttermost. 
Not just a halfway salvation, just not a potential salvation. It is a full atonement. And then notice what it also says there. He always lives to make intercession for those who draw near. He always lives to make intercession. And so here's a basic question. For whom is Jesus always living to make intercession? Who is Jesus mediating? Who's Jesus the mediator for? And so as high priest, does Jesus make atonement for and does he intercede for the same group of people? Yes. He only intercedes on behalf of those for whom he died. So here's the question. Can we say that Jesus is interceding, that Jesus is representing, that Jesus is making intercession on behalf of those who never believe and who end up in hell? If he always lives to make intercession for them, and he has a permanent priesthood forever, and he's able to save to the uttermost, then why are those in hell suffering the wrath of God? Is Jesus interceding for them? And we have to say no. He's not interceding for those in hell because if he were interceding for those in hell, they wouldn't be in hell. And so his intercession and his sacrifice go hand in hand. He sacrifices only for those to whom he intercedes for. And that is limited to his elect. Listen to Hebrews 9, 11 through 14. When Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, Then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the sprinkling of defiled persons with the blood of goats and bulls and with the ashes of a heifer sanctifies for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our consciences from dead works to serve the living God? In verse 12, it says he secured or obtained an eternal redemption. In other words, when Jesus died on the cross, he got what he paid for. It was a finished atonement. It wasn't a hypothetical salvation. He didn't make humans savable. You see, many people will say when Jesus died on the cross, he made salvation possible. He made salvation theoretically possible. And if you hold to that truth that Jesus made salvation possible, then you are left with a quagmire. You're left with this possibility. If Jesus died to make salvation possible, then there could be a possibility that no one would ever come to faith. Because think about it logically. If we have free will and we um, have the ability to come to Christ and we can do this in and of ourselves, then ultimately Jesus could have died on the cross and nobody would ever trust in him. And so really his death was a hypothetical reality to make salvation possible, but not actually to secure an eternal redemption. It wasn't secured. It wasn't obtained. It just made salvation possible. And and Hebrews blows that out of the water. Jesus did not make salvation possible. He obtained eternal redemption for only those to whom he came to save. And those are the same people that he intercedes for. In other words, as, as, as my friend Artaxerdia would say, Jesus got what he paid for and nothing more and nothing less. What did he pay for? The people that were given to him before the foundation of the world, the sheep, his church. 
Now, the last thing that Charles Spurgeon says, most of us would agree with. He says, I can, uh, nor can I comprehend a gospel which lets saints fall away after they are called and suffers the children of God to be burned in the fires of damnation after having once believed in Jesus. Such a gospel I abhor. He's talking about eternal security or the perseverance of the saints. He's saying, I hate a gospel. I abhor a gospel that would let saints fall away if they've been called if they've been sovereignly regenerated, if they've been chosen before the foundation of the earth, if the righteousness of Christ has been imputed to them, if they've been born again, if they're truly saved, how in the world could they ever fall away and go spend eternity in hell after they've once come to faith in Christ? He says, I abhor such a gospel. And then he says, if it ever should come to pass that sheep of Christ might fall away, my fickle, feeble soul, alas, would fall a thousand times a day. And isn't that true? If left to ourselves as sinners, we would fall every day. But if not, for the electing, sovereign, protecting, secure, conquering love of Jehovah to keep his sheep safe to the end, we would not have eternal security. Listen to what Jesus says about the sheep. John six thirty-seven through 39 All that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. This is really Calvinism in a nutshell. If there's one verse, the Father has given a people to Jesus before the foundation of the world. Those people will come to Jesus. Why will they come? Because the Father will draw them. Why do they come? Because Jesus laid down His life for them. And once they come, because they were chosen before the foundation of the world, because Jesus specifically died for them, and because the Holy Spirit has caused them to be born again, He will never cast them out, and He will not lose them, because He's doing the will of His Father. In John 10, 27 through 30. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish. Strong, it's called an emphatic negation in the Greek, in the Greek language. It's the strongest way of, uh, of putting a negative. It's almost like a double negative. It would be translated, they shall never, ever perish, or no, not ever perish. Why will they never perish? Because Jesus gives them eternal life, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who's given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. So you've got this image here that a true sheep, one that's been given to Jesus before the foundation of the world, one who's come to Christ, will never lose that salvation. They'll never perish. No one will snatch them out of Jesus' hand because you've got this imagery of the double grip. They are in Jesus' hand. They are in the Father's hand. So you're in two hands. You're in the Father's hand. You're in Jesus' hand. You're in a double grip because Jesus and the Father are one. Romans 8, 35-39. Who shall separate us? From the love of Christ shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword. As it is written, for your sake we're being killed all the day long. We're regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in 
Christ Jesus our Lord. We've got the security of knowing that nothing in all of creation, even ourselves, even Satan, principalities, powers, angels, rulers, nothing in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Why? Why will we not be separated? Well, because we are in the grip of Jesus Christ, our Savior. And if the Father has given us to Jesus before the foundation of the world, and if Jesus has specifically died for us, obtaining an eternal redemption and he is interceding for us and he died for us and he bought us and the holy spirit at a point in time came and regenerated us and caused us to be born again and gave us the gift of faith and once we repented and believed in jesus uh, we were given the imputed righteousness of christ then why in the world would god be an indian giver and somehow give up what he spent so much love and grace and power to save us Peter says it this way in 1 Peter 1, 3-5. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to His great mercy. He has caused us to be born again. There it is. He caused us to be born again to what? To a living hope. How? Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. To an inheritance. What's this inheritance? It's imperishable, undefiled, unfading. Where is it? It's kept in heaven for you. How? By God's power, you're being guarded through faith, for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. And then Jude 24 and 25. Now to him who's able to keep you from stumbling, stumbling beyond salvation. He's able to keep you from stumbling. And what? To present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. To the only God our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. So Spurgeon says, listen, there's five truths that are the gospel. He says, justification by faith alone, sovereign regeneration, unconditional election, particular redemption, and eternal security or perseverance of the saints. He says, there's no such thing as preaching Christ and Him crucified unless we preach what nowadays is called Calvinism. Now, Again, we have to deal with that statement, and I would disagree with that statement. We preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. The gospel is the good news message of the historical reality of the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ according to the Scriptures. And we command all people everywhere to repent and believe in Him for the forgiveness of sins. And this is a gift of grace alone. That is the gospel. And to piggyback on what John Piper said, does an Arminian preach the gospel? Yes. If an Arminian or a non-Calvinist preaches the historic reality of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ as Lord for the forgiveness of sins according to the scripture and calls people to repent and believe in Jesus as the only way of salvation and that it is a gift of grace, they are preaching the gospel. 
And so I can lock arms with someone that's not a Calvinist and go preach the gospel with them, knowing that we are preaching the same gospel. We all believe that the gospel is the most important message we could ever share. We both believe there's inherent power in the gospel. We both believe that the gospel is the treasure of the glory of Christ. We both believe that the gospel is the word of truth. We both believe that the gospel is life. We both believe that. But the fundamental difference in that is our understanding of how God saves sinners, how a person comes to believe in Christ in the gospel, why a person believes in the gospel, and if once they believed, how will they remain in Christ in the gospel. That's the difference. The gospel is the message. It's the announcement of the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. Calvinism Arminianism, non-Calvinistic Southern Baptist viewpoints, those help inform the underpinning, the undergirding, the underlying assumptions and foundations to the gospel. And so the Calvinist view would say this, we believe in the power of the gospel, but here's what we believe under the surface. When we go out and we share the gospel, when we announce the gospel, when we herald the gospel as the most important message that anybody can hear, and we go to all creation, we don't limit the, the, who we share the gospel with. We share it with everybody because we don't know who the elect are. So we share it indiscriminately with all of creation. We go to unreached people groups. We go into the hard places. We go all over the world and we share the gospel to all creation. But here's what we know. We know that before the foundation of the world, God has chosen a specific number of people to be saved, called His sheep, called His elect. It's a fixed number that God immutably and unchangeably has chosen before the foundation of the world to save. And when Jesus came and when He died on the cross, He specifically obtained the eternal redemption of those whom were given to Him by the Father before the foundation of the earth. And if a person comes to believe the gospel, the reason that they did that was not because they used their free will. It is because God had sovereignly, through the power of the Holy Spirit, regenerated their heart, opened the blind eyes, replaced their heart of stone with the heart of flesh, gave them the gift of repentance, gave them the gift of faith, and they believed in Jesus Christ because God sovereignly did the work first. And once they believe in Jesus Christ, His righteousness is imputed to them and they have a permanent standing of being accepted by God and not guilty. And because God had chosen them before the foundation of the world and because Jesus specifically died for them and because the Holy Spirit caused them to be born again, they will be eternally secure. They will never fully or finally fall away. They will be kept to the end. They will persevere to the end because of God's electing, unchanging, sovereign, persevering love, power, and grace. That's the Calvinistic understanding of salvation. So when we go present the gospel, we can go together with Arminians, we can go with non-Calvinists, and we can share the message of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, and we can call sinners to repent and believe, we can call them to place their faith in Christ, and when they do, we can give them the assurance that all who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Again, the only difference is, why do they believe? How do they believe? What happens when they believe? And will they remain believing? That's the big difference. But the gospel is the same. And really that's the most important message that we can share. We can sit here and camp out on which view you hold to. 
and we can have intramural debates between Calvinists and Arminians and non-Calvinists, and, and we can get into the intricacies of, of all of these different things. And they're important. They're vitally important. They, they help us understand the foundational truths of, of Christianity. But at the end of the day, you're not saved by whether you believe in unconditional election or whether you believe in irresistible grace or whether you believe in any of the five points of Calvinism. That's not what saves you. What saves you is, do you believe that you're a sinner who can't save yourself that you need grace, and that Jesus died on the cross to save sinners. He rose again. He's the King of kings. He's the Lord of lords. He's alive. He's coming back. He's the ruler. He's the absolute Lord. And all people everywhere are commanded to turn from their sins and to believe in Jesus. And once they do that, the promise of Scripture is all who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. That's the most important thing. The most important thing is that every single person have an opportunity to hear the gospel, in such a way that they can respond by repenting and believing. So if there's one hill we're going to die on, it's the hill of the gospel. Now, there's other hills that are important to die on, but I would say that everything else is a secondary issue to the gospel. I hope you've enjoyed listening to Understanding Christianity. I thank you for taking the time to to listen. One of the things that you can help us do to get more listeners is you can go give us a ranking or feedback on iTunes. If you'd go just rank us on iTunes, maybe put some comments. Um, The more you do that on iTunes, the more um, exposure we're going to get and other people will be able to listen to this and they will elevate uh, this podcast a little bit higher in the rankings under Christianity. And again, this is just a, a way to get the message out there. If you have any questions that you'd love for me to answer for you, you can always email me at sean at ebc-online.org. You can go to my website, seancole.net. Uh, you can find me on Twitter. Um, I'm at sdcole is my Twitter. Uh, you can find me on Facebook. I'd love to interact with you. Maybe if you have any questions that you'd like to answer on the podcast that would be beneficial to other listeners, I'd love to do that as well. Thank you for listening to Understanding Christianity. God bless you. May God make His face shine upon you. And until next time, have a wonderful day in the Lord Jesus Christ.